With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Betting the Limit. I'm your host, Drew Shore. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by a new friend of mine, John Hayes. John recently retired after being the CEO of Ball Corporation for over 10 years. I'm excited to sit down with him and discuss leadership, business, and sports. Congrats on retirement. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me. I can't believe we were together, what, a week ago at that Avalanche alumni thing. And comes uh, Drew comes up and says, hey, you want to do a podcast? I'm like, sure, why not? Yeah, I'm trying to grow this thing. And I figured with all of the different things you've been into, you'd be a great guest. And as I was prepping for it this morning, actually a video of you on CNBC came up and my wife started laughing. She said, that guy was just on CNBC doing an interview. How the fuck did you get him to come on <laughs> to come on your podcast? So thank you. I appreciate you uh, doing this. A funny story about that. There's a couple of I did. One during, was during COVID and I was up at our house in New Hampshire, our lake house up in New Hampshire. And I have a suit on. What you don't know is I had shorts on underneath. It was kind of funny. And so I always point that out. So I don't know which one you saw. Yeah, I watched a couple of them. And it's funny, my brother was doing a bunch of interviews during the COVID thing. And we'd always laugh because he'd have the full suit and dress shirt on and then just like sweatpants on. Did you ever, I mean, I know you've been on a couple of times, but did you ever get nervous before going on CNBC? No. No? Not not really. Okay. Um, I just didn't know. I mean, obviously for... In- you know what? Because you know, when you're when you're a CEO, every quarter you do uh, earnings calls and you have no idea what you're going to be asked. You have no idea who's on it. You have customers on it. You have suppliers on it. You have employees on it. You have shareholders on it. And so it's almost like a quarterback when you're reading... You, you, calling off your your uh, your throws because you have no idea what's going to happen. So you got to be ready. You got to be flexible. You got to be adaptable. Okay. And I guess kind of like a hockey player doing a post-game interview, it gets to a certain point that kind of, you've had good games, bad games, you've kind of seen and heard it all. So it's no big deal. Yeah. And there's also the old adage, if you don't like the question, answer the question you want to be asked. All right. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll have no problem on here. How are you enjoying retirement life? Yeah, it's great. It's uh, I um, this has been a long time coming, and I when I became CEO back in I guess it was 2010, I knew that I had probably had about a decade in me. And then 2016, I went to our board and said, you know, we just made this huge acquisition, um, and I said, you know, I'm going to see this through. But when we get to the end of 19, beginning of 20, that's time to really sit down and talk about it. It's exactly the path we were on, and then COVID hit. That kind of pushed it back a couple of years. And I say all that because I was ready for this. I I knew it's it's a little bit like many of these old athletes, they always talk about it's so hard to get up for the preseason. They're just not there. I felt that way in 2020, 2021. So I was ready. And then I promised my, uh, my wife and myself for the first six months I was going to do, uh, the only thing I was going to commit to was nothing. <laughs> And so we, I jokingly called it a reconnection to her. Last six months, I've been to Europe four times. I went to Lake Como with friends. I took my son to Normandy. Then all over the U.S. reconnecting with friends that I just candidly didn't have time, enough time to, to uh, spend with. And so it's been great. And we've been uh, having a blast. That's awesome. Where's your favorite place you've been traveling to? Oh, my gosh. I have to say, I t- took my son. Uh, we went to Munich. We went to Salzburg and then went to Normandy and did like a D-Day tour of 10 days. Jake Schrader, he totally teed us up in uh, in Normandy, and we just had a ball. 
That's awesome. You've been able to play any golf since retirement? I've had my handicap. What's your handicap? Uh, it's a seven now, six, so, eight, something like that. I did hear you were playing golf with one of our mutual friends recently, Kyle Quincy, and we're able to uh, have your first hole-in-one. Second hole-in-one. Second yeah, hole-in-one. That's pretty good for a yeah. seven handicap. Yeah, no, and it was fun. We, uh, it was, I just, I, it was playing at Castle Pines. We were with a bunch of friends. The only downside was it was I'm a member there, and as a result of that, <laughs> had to buy a lot of drinks. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, so. I'm sure Quincy took advantage of that. Yeah, that so, fun. ideal foursome. Gosh. One round, I'm sure whether you've played with them or not played with them, who are you taking? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. I've 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 been blessed in my life, and I've had a chance to play with a lot of pros. Tiger Woods, I haven't. I played with Phil Mickelson a couple times. I've played with uh, Jordan Spieth, uh, Adam Scott, a uh, bunch of other people like that. And but who are the best people I love playing with? Actually, yeah. I'm not blowing smoke. Are hockey players. I, I just because they're easy to take money off of, and they're not as good as golfers. <laughs> Smart. They can hit the ball a country mile, but you know, you know this. Hockey players, as a general species, are very humble people, and they're self-deprecating. Uh, they can chirp with the best of them, and so if you want to spend four hours having a bunch of belly laughs, do it with a bunch of hockey players. I play a lot of golf with the hockey hockey players, and obviously I'm biased, but for the most part, most guys are a pretty good time to play with and decent enough golfers, and like to have fun. Absolutely. I was wondering, do you watch a lot of golf? Like, are you? <sighs> not as much as you'd think. It's, you know, if I just need some downtime, I watch it. It's not the most exciting. Obviously, when you're watching, you know, Sunday of the Masters or the U.S. Open or something, that's a lot of fun. But just, you know, random random Saturday in July, not so sure. Are you allowed to give me your opinion on the Live Tour? Uh, I'm happy to give you my opinion on the Live Tour. It's blood money at the end of the day. It's blood. I get the business side of it. But someone has to show me what the business case is for all the money they're putting in. Where's, where's the return on investment? Because it's a for-profit enterprise. And I get players uh, wanting to go after the money. But from a business perspective, someone's got to show to me what the business case is of the Live Tour. I get the PGA Tour. That makes money. I get the USGA. They, they give back to the game. But what is the Live Tour doing? So what do you think of like Phil Mickelson? Because a lot of people obviously criticized him early on. Now that the PGA Tour has done a bunch of things for the players, it's like some people are thanking Phil for it. Some people are. So, you know what I mean? I feel like he faced a lot of criticism early about it. And now it seems like a lot of the guys in the PGA are benefiting from it as well. Yeah, and I don't disagree. Look, competition works. And that's effectively what it is. I just have a, a problem where you have a nation state putting billions of dollars and they're never going to get a return on that. Never. You know, it's, it's no different than... In the hockey world, when you had the East Coast Hockey League and you had the Central Hockey League, that was for profit. They were competing against each other and competition works. But when you're investing billions in something, and you know, you're not going to get a return. Someone has to show me that's that's real competition. All right. That makes sense. And obviously the actual competition on the tour with there not being a cut and stuff like that isn't as competitive. Um Moving on from the golfing thing, as a CEO, I know you're so busy, but do you listen to any podcasts yourself? Like, are you, do you like, would you ever throw on a Joe Rogan episode like while you're on the plane? You know, I never did until COVID happened. And my son got me into Joe Rogan a little bit, got me into spitting checklists. Um, those are about the only ones. And now betting the limit. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, okay. yeah. But uh, not really. I'm not, when I'm in the car, I, I, I just want to tune out. So I'll just throw on music. Okay. That makes sense. We were able to connect and become friends because you recently moved to Denver from Boulder where yep. you lived for how long? 22 years. Well, 
we, we moved to, to Boulder in 1999, and for three years we lived in Germany. But absent those three years from 99 to 2021, I live in Boulder. Okay, then I know we just talked about it a little bit, but I know you're kind of now a Boulder sports fan. Are you pumped about the new hire in uh, Boulder? Prom-com, Coach Prom. It's I had the chance of being up there Sunday for the press conference, and that town was buzzing. It's it, it's bringing a level of excitement. So when Carl Durrell was uh, was hired, I went to the press conference there, and there's probably 30 people, maybe 40 people in there. There was over 400 people when uh, Coach Prime was being interviewed, and it was just electric. I listened to some of those speeches, especially the ones he was giving the team, and I felt like I was ready to get off my couch and play for him or do whatever he asked of me. Absolutely. We're coming. We're coming. Uh, they already have their schedule. Will you go to the first game next year? It's at TCU. It probably won't go to that game, but the first home game is against Nebraska. And even at the press conference, Rick George was chastising the fans because he said last time Nebraska was here, half of half the, the uh, stadium was red. That's not happening. You know where you sit. Ain't happening. No, that's awesome. I was too young to really remember when they were one of the elite powerhouses at football. So I'm just excited now that I'm back living here to be able to go to the games. A lot of the media said too, a lot of the NIL money and like the recruits he's going to be able to pull in now are going to be some of the best athletes the school's ever seen. Do you, being a sports fan, are you pretty pumped about the NIL stuff or what's your opinion on that? It, well, it's, it, there's a couple of things. It's not only the NIL, but it's more importantly to me, the transfer portal. Look, the, uh, the NIL, um, college, college athletes don't, haven't gotten paid a dime and, and everyone else is making money on their backs. And so I get the need for NIL, but actually uh, Coach Prime said it best. He said, while the NIL is important and I want my kids to participate in it, I want them focused on the NFL, not the NIL. And so there is a level of, of money to attract, but I, I'm kind of against the rules are right now because it's, 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 free it's out agency. Of, well, yeah, it's out of control. And there's no, there's no salary cap, so to speak. There's no floor. And so you, you're going to get the, you know, the haves and the have nots, the, the uh, gap between them is only going to get bigger. And then you layer on this transfer portal where remember you used to, uh, you used to have to sit out a year if you transferred. Now someone can throw two million bucks at you. You can transfer right away, and there's nothing to stop you from doing that. Well, it's not even that. Like when I was playing hockey in college at DU, it was like no one transferred. Maybe one guy and you transferred because you had to sit out a year. But now it's like it goes both ways because it's like a kid faces a little bit of adversity for the first time as an 18 year old and just switches schools. Right, and that's exactly what happened with uh, Colorado last year. They got totally raided. I think four or five of their starters. They lost, and they went to USC. They went to Oregon, and uh, and so they were on the bad side of this. I think Coach Prop is going to flip it around and make this, um, make this a a strength, not a weakness. It's a little bit. Remember basketball with uh, John Calipari, one and done. Yeah, it, it's the same kind of concept. The, the rules are different now, and whether we like them or not, it is what it is. So you got to find a coach that knows how to play those rules, and Coach Prime knows how to play those rules. Yeah, I'm pumped. I do see a little bit in hockey too. Like some of these kids, I'll get a call now about like a kid who's going to a great school and has a future in the NHL who's super worried about an NIL deal that's it's not nothing like football or basketball or stuff, but it's like for very little money, you know what I mean? For a couple of free meals. And it's like some of these kids, they should be focused on getting to the NHL right? or like doing well in school, you know what I mean? But so much of the focus now is on this deal from a smoothie company, you know what I mean? So I think that it definitely kind of throws their, I guess, minds in places they probably shouldn't be spending time focusing on. Yeah, it gets, it gets very short-term oriented. That's why I love what Coach Prime said. While it's important that they get some NIL, I want them focused on the NHL, not the NIL. 
It's the same, or NFL, excuse me, not NIL. It's the same thing with hockey. And that's the advice I'd be giving these guys. Yeah. How did you, I know you've talked a lot, especially in your interviews about how much you love hockey. Are you a sports fanatic in general or is hockey just kind of the number one and everything else falls? No, no, I'm a sports fanatic generally. And I, I obviously never played to the level you did, but you know, growing up, you know, the locker room honestly has made me who I am in terms of business and the things you learn in the locker room about selflessness and teamwork and accountability and setting goals. That's as relevant in a a business environment as it is on a hockey team or a football team. So those life lessons I learned through sports generally have carried me a long way. That's awesome. I did hear, though, someone told me, one of our close mutual friends, the last hockey game you participated in, (laughs) the score might have been 19-1. to Is that true or is he messing around? I think he's messing around. But they did have some, I think, some Hall of Famers on it, and I don't think your team had quite the the same lineup. They did. It was funny. What's your – Drew's talking about is I actually was the owner of the uh, the Denver Cutthroats and it was actually pink at the rink night. It was the last night. My, actually, my father saw me played hockey, and we played the. It was the Fire, the Denver Fire and Police uh, All Stars that were playing the former NHLs, and I, it was Joe Sakic, Adam Foot. Uh, Milan Hayduk, uh, Scotty Parker, and I just remember I actually got in the puck. I was behind the net. I think I was playing deep fence doesn't matter i start skating up and there's no passing lanes no one is open and so i take it past the blue line i get up to center ice and i'm looking and there's four guys across it was those four players i just mentioned i literally flipped the puck over their heads went to the bench and said i have no shot yeah that's enough that had to have been fun though that was great what was your experience like so you bought the denver cutthroats in was that 2012 yeah i think so and owned them for two years correct what was the experience like because if i was ever able to make a ton of money. Like the first thing I would do is try and buy a sports franchise. So I'm very interested, like what the experience was like. Was it compared to what you had expected? Was it enjoyable, stressful? Yeah. Well, it, the business of sport is real hard. Let me tell you that, particularly at the minor league level, because you don't get the capital appreciation. It's not like you're going to go and sell these teams for, you know, a gazillion dollars. I had been involved in minor league baseball throughout all the 2000s. A dear friend of mine who actually was a partner of mine at the Cutthroats, we went to business school together and he, he worked for the Pittsburgh Penguins for a while. He ran Camden Yards in Baltimore for a while. So he came from that background. And back right after um, we lived in Europe from 2005 to 2008, and when we came back, the Rocky Mountain Rampage of the Central Hockey League was in Bloomfield. From my office, I looked at their their uh, stadium just off of 36 there. And, um, and my son was eight years old and you know, he lived in Europe, so he didn't have an opportunity to skate. He, he wanted to learn to skate and play hockey. And so one of their players, his name was Scott Ray, every six o'clock every morning, he'd take my son and, and, and help him learn to skate. And one day I went to pick him up to take him to school. And Scott Ray said, you know, we got a 10 a.m. meeting. I think the team's folding. I'm like, what? You have a brand new stadium at First Bank Arena. Yeah. It was called something different back then. I'm like, how can and hockey's the fastest growing sport in Colorado? How can this be happening? So that kind of began this journey. I called my buddy Greg Smith. I said, "Am I stupid?" He's like, "Just, just eyes wide open. These things are tough to make money." And so that was 2008, and um, that ultimately failed, but it got us interested. And so we started up a new team playing at the Color Coliseum, and we were looking. We wanted to call it Grizzlies, you know, in because of the Grizzlies years ago, but that was, they're up in um, Salt Lake, I think it is right now, or Idaho, I can't remember which, doesn't matter. But in any event, so we came up with Cutthroat was the uh, the state fish of Denver. So that's for the origins of it. It was hard because we, 
we announced it in March and first puck drop was five months later. So you had to assemble a team and, you know, it was the hockey side was the easier side of it. It was the business side of it, getting, getting your marketing, getting your logo, getting, you know, uh, salespeople out there. Were you doing all this or were you more hands-off? Like, cause I, I mean, you're the CEO yeah, of a pretty big company. That's at exactly the time. Yeah. I was the, I was the, I was the financial partner. My, my friend, Greg Smith, he had moved out here. And now it, it, it gets really sad because three weeks before the first puck dropped in our, our inaugural season, I had a meeting with him and he said, Hey, John, I got to head back to Baltimore where his family was living. He said, I got something growing here. I got to go to the doc, make sure I'm okay. Turned out it was uh, cancer. And 14 months later, he passed away of cancer. And so he was around for that first season. Then that second season was really, really tough. Um, I had to, again, I had to hire a bunch of people. I'm running a, you know, public company. <laughs> I didn't have the time for this. And it was really, really stressful. But I surrounded myself like I did in business. Surround yourself with people that you know are passionate, that are driven, that are accountability. So I got a couple of ex-NHLers. And uh, you know him, Derek Armstrong, who ultimately became our president. He was our coach at first. And then uh, Brad Smith, who became our coach. And we um, we actually had a successful second season. Did you go to the finals? We did. Right? We did. We lost to um, Allen, Texas. Um, but in any event... Then the league went bankrupt during that summer. And I was like, oh, so we got to decide whether we're going to continue. And if we continue, we were going to move to the East Coast League. The problem was I just didn't have the bandwidth. And with all, you know, with Greg Smith passing away and all these other issues, we sat, the three of us, Brad Smith, uh, Derek Armstrong, and myself sat in our backyard. I remember it was August. And like, boys, thumbs up or thumbs down. And we all mutually agreed that, you know, let's put it on pause. We can always revisit it. And, um, and that's what we did. And then we did try to revisit it. As you know, the Colorado Eagles are now at the AAA. We actually tried to create a AAA team down in Colorado Springs. Okay. Uh, that would have been the affiliate of the, uh, of the Avalanche because that's when, remember, that's when all the American League teams were moving out west and creating a western Yeah, league. I think the Avs team might have been in Cleveland, Ohio at that point. It was in Cleveland. You're right. It was first San Antonio, then Cleveland. And so that we, we wanted to do it and you know, think about not only from a player perspective, but from a coach perspective, a trainer perspective, a front office person, a sales rep person. It would be a great training ground. And we were trying to do a joint venture with the Avalanche. It ultimately just didn't work out. Well, I think a lot of those teams now have moved their AAA affiliate team to almost the same city or within right. 45 minutes. Because like when my brother was playing in LA, mm -hmm. his AAA team was in Manchester, New Hampshire. So on top of all of the things you just mentioned, it's like a four hour flight for guys and on game yeah. day and flights are getting delayed and stuff like that. But I think most of the teams are starting to figure that out. I saw your brother play in Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, it was during the holidays. We have a house out there. My kids went to school out there. And I remember who's the uh, general manager of, uh, of LA now. Um, Rob Blake is the Rob manager. Blake, he, was, yeah. he was the general manager. I think he was general manager of the Monarchs okay. at that time. And so I was up, uh, army hooked us up. And I went and watched the game. Yeah, he's close to the Army. I think they might have played together at some right, point. I remember seeing your brother there because he had just – that was his first season, I think. With, uh, yeah, they did two years. And now they're in actually Ontario, California. Right. So they figured that out. But, yeah, it's uh, – now that you're retired, would you ever get back into the sports ownership business? My wife would, uh, would, would divorce me <laughs> if I did. So the official answer is no. We'll talk off the side. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if the right opportunity comes. Sounds good. No, I would love to do that. What was – like when you were growing up, were you always one of the smartest kids or like what was like childhood like for you? Because I'm kind of interested for people who are able to achieve such great success in business, kind of like what growing up was like. Now, you know, I was uh, candidly, I came from a broken family. 
I, I was a very shy kid. Uh, I was, I was mediocre at many things and not terrific at anything. And I, I really do think that those transformative period of time, particularly remember freshman, sophomore in high school, I, there's times that I'd spend a couple of weeks living in a friend's house just because there I had too many other things going on at the family. And that's where, as I said, that's where really hockey in that locker room um, really matured me and taught me about what was important about teamwork and selflessness and dedication and, and all those things. And so it was literally, it was a tipping point, turning point for me. And so I think kind of saw between sophomore, junior and high school, that's where it started clicking for me. Yeah. And I was fortunate to be able to go to Colgate university. And um, how was college? It was awesome. It was awesome. I, I, tried to walk on and I was a solid fifth line center. So <laughs> I was a fifth line out. center for most of my career too. Yeah. So yeah, no, but I ended up playing golf there and I just had a blast. My lifelong friends um, are, uh, are from Colgate and had a really, really great time. At Colgate, if someone would have told you you would have been the CEO of a company <laughs> like ball, what would you have laughed? If the, if the day I joined ball corporation, if you had told me I'd be CEO of ball, I would have laughed. That was not my intent at all. I had, I had after college, I worked for a couple of years, um, uh, in Connecticut for consulting firm. Then when it got my MBA at Northwestern, met my wife there and my dream was always good to want to go to wall street. And so that's what I did. And so I ended up working for Lehman brothers first in New York and then Chicago. And what I realized was, um, I didn't like it. It was my dream job and I hated it. What'd you hate? You know, I always joke that I was in investment banking, but not an investment banker. It's it's a bunch of individuals. So I was talking earlier about the teamwork and the selflessness. Wall Street, my experience, it was the antithesis of that. Everyone was out for themselves. That there was no there was no we. There was only I, and um, and that's just it was an environment I didn't want to be in. Ball was in Muncie, Indiana at the time. They were a client of ours, and I remember to ask telling my wife at one point, I would love to join ball great people great values i could totally see myself fitting in there were they a client of the company that you were working like when you were working yeah. in chicago because yeah. i read that they were a client okay yeah. so you knew kind of about their culture through well, that great story i won't bore you with too much detail but i had a very bad accident fourth of july 1997 and i had i have four plates and five pony bone grafts i almost lost my eye a total orbital bone uh and i was i was uh, um in the hospital at home for about three or four months and a lot of friends and family come visit. Not one person from Lehman Brothers came to visit. But you've been working there for for six years, something like that. That's wild. But, but someone drove up from Muncie, Indiana, um, and it stopped by my house to see how I was doing. It was two people. It was the CFO, who then became CEO, and I replaced the CEO, and his assistant, who still works at the company, and she's the head of our investor relations. And those things had such a indelible left such an indelible mark on me. Um, that I remember telling my wife, I'd love to join ball, but I'd never ask you to move to Muncie, Indiana. Six months after that conversation with my wife, they announced they're moving out to Colorado. And six months after that, I joined them. And when I joined them, I, I took a 80% pay cut. I took a degradation. Yeah. What was your first job? So you leave wall street. Well, you, I mean, then you're in Chicago, but you leave Lehman brothers yep. and you joined ball. What were you doing at ball to start? It, it's uh, corporate development, which is mergers and acquisitions and those types of things. I call it external growth. So it kind of fit perfectly. And so I did that for a while. And then the first 10 years at ball, I think I had 11 different jobs. I did new product development. I did marketing. I did investor relations. And then in 05, I was asked to move to Europe to run our European business. 
Where in Europe did you live? Uh, Dusseldorf, or as my wife calls it, Drizz- okay. Drizzledorf. Drizzledorf, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, that's close to Zurich, Switzerland, where yeah. I lived for a few years. So yeah. I actually played there. They have a hockey team in the DEL there. Yes, that's exactly. Did you go to any of those games? Uh, we did, we went all the time. And that was classic, as you know, because the, the rinks were very rinky-dink, and they were quasi-indoor, quasi-outdoor. And, you know, people would smoke in them. And oh, yeah, you'd come back, and- like there'd be an intermission for 20 minutes and you'd come back in and come back on the ice and you could just like breathe almost <laughs> cigarette smoke from the ice. That's exactly. the same in Switzerland. It's wild. Yeah, no, it's, I'm trying to think of, was it the Rhine fire? No, it was the football team. I forget the name of it. But Did you enjoy living in Europe? We, uh, we went uh, kicking and screaming and we came back kicking and screaming. It, it was a big culture shock. We didn't know any German. We lived in a town. We were the only non-Germans there. So it was tough. Was your, were you guys, was your son born at this time? No, yeah, he was five years old. Our daughter was which eight is, and our son was five. Which isn't easy either because it's like your kid gets sick there and you're going to like a hospital and no one yeah. speaks. And I think a lot of people don't realize they're like, oh, it'd be so nice to live in Europe. But then like traveling to Europe and living in Europe is yeah. such a different thing. But like you said, it was like there's so much in Switzerland that we miss now that we're back here, especially like the Christmas markets and some of that yeah. stuff. But at the time you're kind of like, oh, it'd be nice to get back home. We used to go, we were, lived about 45 minutes from Cologne, Germany. We used to go down on Sundays to the Hard Rock Cafe there to get our American fix. Yeah. Know? We would drive in Switzerland, in Zurich, there was a Starbucks at the airport yeah. and we'd like go pay like $14 for a coffee, but it just felt good. To, even though it didn't taste quite the same, it was like a little bit of Felt like a sense of home. It was funny. You could there was a Walmart twenty minutes from our house, and we'd go there and you'd see Americans just wandering the halls, just you know, looking for something to do. Can you speak any German now? My Deutsch is nicht so gut. <laughs> All right. <laughs> did when you came back? Did you come back to the U.S. for a different role? Yeah. So I was running our European business then, and then I came back uh, in two thousand eight, right during the financial crisis, as our chief operating officer for the whole company. Uh, so we had, because Ball has a couple different business lines. We make, we make satellites. So if you go to Google, Google Earth, for example, and those pictures, those are pictures of satellites we built. And we also make a beverage cans. We make about 350 million beverage cans a day around the world. So we have a pretty big business. So. Where else around the world? Like, I think I read there's like 22,000 employees in like a hundred locations, but is that all over the world too? Like all different, like yep, even in Asia world. and stuff yeah. like that? We actually, in 2019, it's always better to be lucky than good. End of 19, right before COVID happened, we sold our China business. But we're all throughout Southeast Asia. We're very big all throughout South America, um, you know, Brazil, uh, Argentina, Paraguay, Chile, um, Central America, all throughout Europe. In fact, we had to deal with, um, we had a Russian business that we ended up selling about four or five months ago as a result of the Ukraine situation going on. But we're all throughout Eastern Europe. We're in the Middle East. Um, yeah, the only place we're really not is Africa. We're in Northern Africa and Egypt, but we're not in Southern Africa. I'm really interested in what like the day-to-day is as a CEO. Like, were you traveling all the time to all of these locations? All the time, yeah. I'm a big believer that you can't run a business so you got to be where the point of attack is all the time. And so that's out being with customers, being with your employees, being with suppliers. Um, yeah. And so I was on the road 80 plus percent of the time. Wow. So you must've seen a lot of cool places, but as everyone knows, that gets tiring after all, <laughs> that gets tiring after all. Based on your answer to that question, I wanted to pick your brain on kind of the new debate on all these companies, like making people go into the office versus staying at home. But I feel like I know your answer, but I'd love to hear your take on, you're retired now, but if you were young and starting your own company now, what would your philosophy be on that? You know, it, it's, um, I'm old school. Let me just start by saying that. 
and I, I deeply believe that business is 95% about people. And you can't have connectivity when you're staring at a screen. You can get be efficient, get things done, but you miss that water cooler talk. And so there's a balance, you know, and, but I, I think it, we went from too far on one end prior to COVID to too far on the other end. There is a middle ground. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to that, you know, are CEOs of, uh, of other businesses and they're all dealing with the same issue because it's the worst of both worlds right now. Cause so many companies are allowing people to come in for three days a week, but they're not the same three days a week. And so you go into these offices, they're half empty. So you don't get that morale, you don't get that camaraderie. And then when people go back to their house, you, you're, they're missing that mentorship that they're not getting there. So it's the worst of both worlds. So I don't know what the right answer is, but if I was starting a business right now, I'd say, well, you know what? I don't care if you're, you're coming in the office every day, but I don't care if you're coming in at 11 at night or if you're coming in at 11 in the morning, but you need to have your presence here because that's where the, the heartbeat ticks. And you can't do that. You can't run a business from an office at home. You cannot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, I've never been a CEO, but I just feel like from a cultural standpoint, yeah. that's what it would be all about. Absolutely. Just imagine, I mean, just imagine if you have um, playing hockey and your practices and only a third of the people show up. You get nothing done. Right. Or it's like, even with this podcast, to be honest, like I started it thinking I was going to have all these really cool, fun, in-depth conversations with people. And then I realized... As it went on, half of my episodes have been on Zoom. And honestly, even if I'm interviewing one of the coolest people in the world, it's like when you log on a computer in Zoom, it's just not the same. It's two-dimensional. You miss that third dimension. You, I think you were 44 when you, is that right, when you became CEO? What advice? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Advice would you give to yourself like now that you didn't have back then? Um, you know, the first couple of years was such a blur and everyone thinks... Everyone thinks you, you know what you're doing. And the truth is you're winging as much as anyone. You just got to trust your judgment, trust your gut. And, um, and you know, there's an old saying, to, uh, uh, to thine own self be true. Be yourself. You know, you got there for a reason. I'll never forget. The best advice I got was by the person I replaced as CEO. And as the day literally the transition happened. He looked back at me as I was in my office and he said, just remember, you got here for a reason. Don't change that. Be yourself. And it was some of the best advice I've gotten. I've, that's great advice. I've noticed a lot of people in your position who have had a ton of success um, really attribute a lot of that to their mentors. You said the person 
um, who you follow. Did you have a lot of other people in your life giving you advice and stuff at the time? I have, I'm a big believer that every single person you're in contact with has the potential of being a mentor. You're going to learn something from them if you're curious about that. So even on this podcast right now, I know that I'm learning something about myself because of the questions you're asking. So that's, that's a general question, but I did have two, three, four people throughout my life that the captain of my hockey team in, in high school was a dear mentor of mine. That's, he's one of the reasons why I went to Colgate. Um, my very first boss, who this reconnection to her I talked about over the last six months, I had a chance to have lunch with him. He's a 78-year-old man. I hadn't seen him in 35 years. We got together. It felt like I hadn't seen him in 35 days. Um, so all along the walks of life, there's different mentors along the way. So long as you're, uh, so long as you're humble enough to know that you can learn something from every person you run into. Yeah. That's great advice. Now that I'm trying to enter kind of my next phase of my life, I'm trying to kind of live by that and just kind of take in as much as I can from different people and be a sponge, be a sponge and see where it takes me. What was the hardest thing? Like people have a lot of like either <laughs> misconceptions or whatever about like what the day to day is of a CEO, but like, what was the biggest challenge for you? The, the biggest thing that even, even now and you'll laugh at this, that I still uncomfortable with, I never want to be the center of attention. I, I truly believe Teamwork makes the dream work. And too often in today's society, you are put on a pedestal that you're the all-knowing, you're the CEO, you must know. And the best, what I always try and do is push it down. I try and make as few decisions as possible because I'm the one with the least amount of information typically. And so whenever we're in a room and someone says, you know, customer XYZ is going to pull their business in five minutes unless we do uh, make an adjustment to our to our contract, what should we do? The first thing I'll do is say, what do you think we should do? Because you know much more about the situation than I do. And I often think of the CEO's real job at the end of the day is, you know, use a sports analogy, use a music analogy. They're a conductor of the, of the orchestra. They want to make sure that the trumpets are playing with the cellists that are playing with the violinists. Because when you do that, that's how you make music. But if you're the one trying to play all those at once, you don't need everyone else. And so I'm a big believer of pushing down decision-making to the point of attack. Yeah, I read a quote that you basically said the exact same thing, but I thought reading that this morning, it was such a cool quote. It was, we try to push decision-making as low as possible. That's where the point of contact is. The result is like when you get people to speak up, you get better ideas. Absolutely. And then with that, you were also quoted saying like, when you hire people, you sometimes try and hire people who have completely different views than you. And that kind of opened my eyes a little bit just as I'm entering like the hockey and eventually want to be a GM and stuff one day that like you really went out of your way to surround yourself with people who might not agree with everything you say. I always joke, we don't need 25,000 John Hayes. I already know what John Hayes thinks. I, I need to know what other people think. And to me, that is the ultimate test of what diversity means. Because if you get a bunch of yes people around you, um, giving you the same idea that you, the way you think about it, you're not going to learn. And so it's getting people saying, wait, wait, John, slow down here. I see it totally different. And let me tell you why. That's how you learn. And that's how you get better decisions. I think in the sports world, at least so many people make that mistakes. Like, especially in hockey. Now you see these GMs hire these guys who are all their buddies, right? Who it's like, either they all think the same, or if they don't, they all agree with what each other are saying. But it seems like a lot of the successful people, like you said, really go out of their way to just completely surround themselves with people who might be completely different. Yeah, a great case in point. So the um, person who was in charge of our HR while I was um, 
CEO, totally different person, very process oriented, very stay within the lines, the lines, your friend. And I'm, I'm much more, well, let's just wing, let's just try it here. And she was so good about keeping me centered and grounded. Um, and it was a great example of how diversity of thought can make a better product. Makes sense. Elon Musk has been in the news a lot lately, um, just for numerous things, obviously acquiring Twitter and all of the other things. He's also like, I originally read a bunch of his books and stuff, and he talks about how people don't work enough now and how his routine and how he's the hardest working person at the office and stuff like that. And just how kind of his day starts at 3 a.m. I was just wondering, like when you were CEO, kind of can you walk me through how you were able to like manage your time on a day-to-day basis? Or was it so different depending on your country or kind of what you were doing? It was so, it's a 24-7 job. And, and it truly is because you have your, I have my cell phone on. I can't tell you how many times I was woke up in the middle of the night because we had an issue going on in Europe or we had a, you know, injury over in Asia. Oh, it's literally 24 seven with the time, literally. with the time change. Like people yeah. say 24 seven, but you're literally 24 seven. Yeah. Literally 24 seven. I mean, I would, you know, uh, we have business, uh, Thailand is 15 hour difference right now. So you have an issue going on in Thailand. The big joke is, are you going to, are we going to have a five in the morning Colorado call or a five at night? Who's going to be the one not in, in bed doing that? And so it is literally 24 seven. And that's, that's a, if you're, if you, if you enjoy that environment, it's so invigorating, but I'll also tell you, it chews you up and wears you out. And that's why I said earlier, I knew that there's a shelf life to doing this because I, I'm not very good at work-life balance. I'm not good at turning off my phone. You're all, well, you can't though as a CEO. Right, because other people are relying on you. Are you able to like, are you able, one of those people who's able to function on like three hours of sleep? I can. I don't, don't <laughs> enjoy it, but I can. Can yeah. you sleep in now that you're retired? Do you still wake up at like 3 a.m. thinking your phone's ringing and it's not? You know, it's, I, I'm still in that process kind of um, decoupling. I, I'll never forget though. I'm not there yet, but I, years ago, there's someone I worked with and I saw him about a year and a half after he retired. And I said, what's the best thing about retirement? And he said, never dreaming about work. And I was like, oh, it kills me. I'm not quite there yet. I still have the occasional dream about work, um, but I'll get there. Okay. That makes sense. I want to pick your brain a little bit on just some finance stuff. As I'm representing athletes, like you see a lot of Young kids, who are, especially with the NIL stuff we were talking about, come into money that doesn't last very long, that at the time seems like a lot. Um, there have been a lot of bad stories that obviously get a lot of media attention and stuff like that. What would your advice from a financial standpoint be to like a 21-year-old kid who signs gets a huge signing bonus in the MLB or NFL or kind of how, how would you navigate that with them? I've always lived my life that you should live um, – with three years earlier in your means. So if you're 21 year, years old and you have that, um, live like you're 18 years old. Live like you have nothing. And you'll be so thankful when you become 24, 25, 26, because you'll have a lot of that bank. Because at some point in time, you know, particularly with athletes, it's going to stop. And if you haven't put money in the bank, you're going to be living like you're 18 again. Right. And you're used to living a pretty... Correct. Good lifestyle, which once you kind of live that lifestyle, it's hard for a lot of people to be like, oh, cut back when you retired, but that's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. Do you handle your own investments from a personal standpoint? Um, typically, yes. Yeah. I mean, I have people help because I just don't have the time. Yeah. But um, in terms of asset allocation and the risk taking, you know, they'll find the specific ideas, but within a, an asset allocation, um, I'm the one making the asset allocations. Are you going to do more of that now that you don't have to like a company to run? It is. It's a lot of fun. I've, I've started to invest in some 
some more startup type companies, private companies, things that I just didn't have time to really deeply understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I am doing some more of that. That makes sense. I forgot to ask you, I was actually just debating with my brother today. We brought up Elon Musk. Should I be buying or selling Twitter or Tesla stock? You know, it's, it's a tough one. Here's what I would say. Um, Elon Musk has never lost. I don't know if I'd bet against him. Now, I don't know if it, I'd go all in for him, but, you know, never bet against a winner. Do you know Scott Chosel? I don't. The name sounds familiar. He worked at Janus. Um, oh, yes, I do know. Yeah, him. Cherry yeah. Hills. Got, well, anyway, yeah. like he kind of, when I first signed my contract, mentored me a little bit in finance. And he was talking about sometimes from an investment standpoint, just betting on people. Yeah. And then I met with some other people who ended up, Basically, from a financial standpoint, not believing in Tesla. And I ended up selling a bunch of Tesla stock for a gain of very, very little versus right. holding it because he said the exact same thing. He's like, he will figure it out, whether that be yeah. he'll just find success, whether it's through cars, through his housing system, through something like he would not bet against them. Like I said before, not 95% of business is people. And so I'm 100% invest behind people, not ideas, because there's old cliche, but it's so true. You can take a crappy business with great people and do well, but at the same time, you can take a great business with crappy people. And I guarantee you, you're going to be flushing it down at some point. Every business that goes out of business, it's not because the idea was bad. It's always because people. I like that. That's good. Were you around last year during the spring for the Avs playoff run? Yes, except the, the Stanley Cup, I was here, and then I went to Europe with my wife and some friends, and then we ended up watching the, them host, hoisting the Stanley Cup in Lake Como, Italy at 6 in the morning. <laughs> okay, well, that's not a bad spot. I was just curious for that because a lot of people who aren't from Denver, it was recently, it officially became Ball Arena, and you guys bought the naming rights. Were you involved in that process? I, I was. It wasn't, again, a great idea. It wasn't my idea. In fact, I, I'm so old school. I had trouble early on putting our heads around this. It all has to do with recycling and sustainability. The, 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 the business thesis behind it was, um, uh, I'll go into a little detail because it's interesting, but starting in about mid 2016 or 17, it was clear that we have this plastic pollution issue, that plastic is polluting our planet everywhere. And I think the world, jump fast forward today, people know that, that we are polluting the world with plastic. The problem that what they don't know is, and there's an alternative, it's called aluminum. 75% of all aluminum ever produced by man is still in use today. Why? It's infinitely recyclable. There's value to recycling it. The, the body politic doesn't know that. So we were scratching our head as the world's leader in aluminum beverage manufacturing. We were saying, how do we get people to know that? And so the aluminum cup you're familiar with, we launched that in part because that was getting it, it went right after the solo plastic cup. Um, and all this was happening right when the naming rights of the Pepsi arena, Pepsi said they weren't going to renew. We were in discussions in the fall of 19 with them, it just, but it just didn't make economic sense to us. And we said, thanks, but no thanks. And then COVID hit and there was nothing. And at that point in time, we were able to do some very creative stuff with, with the Kroenke uh, group. And it wasn't just Denver. Don't forget that Mr. Kroenke also owns Arsenal and Emirates Stadium in London. And he also owns the LA Rams and SoFi in LA. So he had a good year last year. <laughs> exactly. So when you close your eyes and think about this whole sustainability, this anti-plastic, ground zero one is London, ground zero two 
is LA. And so it was more than just Denver. It's those three things. Now, our name's not on those, but I guarantee you, you go into SoFi Arena, you'll see nothing but aluminum packaging in there. You go to Emirates, it's a little different because of the pre- Premier League rules and all the hooligans and all that stuff, but you will see uh, all products all over there. So as much about getting it uh, into the hands of the consumer, aluminum, and getting them to see that plastic equals bad and there's an alternative. That's why when you go to Ball Arena, you'll see the, the bins. You'll see aluminum, landfill, because that's effectively what happens when you have a plastic bottle. You may think you're recycling because you're throwing a recycling bin. Dollars to donuts, that's getting ultimately thrown in the landfill because it costs money to recycle. It has no economic vitality. So even if you're recycling it, it's not really. It's cheaper to use virgin plastic to make a new bottle than it is to use recycled plastic. That is not sustainable. Okay. So I'll get off my soapbox. No, no, no. I like it. I like it. It's good learning for me. It's good learning for me. Well, so you picked a good year to obviously transfer the arena yeah. with the with the Avs winning and stuff. Did you follow the FT? I just now I was thinking of the Miami Heat for a second. I was thinking of naming rights in general. It seems like every company now is trying to get their name on one of these stadiums. Well, it, funny story, and I'm a bit embarrassed to say this, but when we first had our first meeting with the with the Cronky folks. Um, who are great people, by the way. But I walked in and I, I was, I was, I'm embarrassed now because I was kind of a jerk. Because I said, "Can anyone tell me what the stock price performance is of those companies that put naming their name on stadiums?" I had done my research. I know they had all gone. Well, south. yeah, for me, I've seen some of the deals, and I don't know anything about the economics. But it like, well, it's funny now because well, it's not funny. But like, some of them are paying like 150 million yeah. for like a five year thing, and it's like, what are the what return are they getting on that? That's that's exactly it. So unless you have a business case behind it. And that's what, that was my point. It's like, what's the business case here? And we were able to develop it with Kroenke begin and worked with them because now when you go to Ball Arena and you go in, you will hear all the things I was just saying. Do you know that 75% of all aluminum ever produced by man is still in use today? Do you know that 72% of that can in your hand right now has recycled aluminum because it's the most recycled uh, material in the world. You'll hear those types of things. And it's kind of fun when I was there last night at the game, unfortunately, not a very good game, but um, walking behind some people, these were people that, you know, tattoos, you know, they big beards, and they were talking about recycling. Do you think they were talking about that four years ago? No way. And so it's starting to get into the psyche of people. And what, to me, that says, this is working. It's working. Yeah, so that makes sense. But for a lot of the companies, you think it's just a. I think they're just yeah you throwing know. money at something and not yeah. where. Yeah, I definitely think. That. Especially if they go bankrupt and then they have to take all the signs down. I'm all, without naming names. I'm surprised. I look at some of these names and say, "What are they getting for that? What's the consumer proposition?" With us, like I said, it was about um, plastic equals bad, aluminum equals good, and balls the leader in aluminum. So you can see that link. But that makes sense to me. And like, I understand you kind of just walking through the whole thing, but it's like crypto.com, like, right. like they're paying, I don't know the exact 200 million. Like how much business are they actually getting from that? You know what I mean? I, I, I totally get it. I want to get your opinion on cryptocurrency now after everything that's happened <laughs> the last couple of weeks. Um, I am, as I said before, I'm old school. I've never owned crypto, never even thought about owning it because I don't know what owning it means. What is it other than ether? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you could now you could say the same thing about gold. You know, but why why is gold of value? Well, it does go into manufacturing certain things, and it does have a historical context. But I just I just have I'd never invest in things that I don't don't understand. I don't understand crypto. 
I don't think most people understand crypto. I think very few people understand it. And I've tried to learn as much as I can about it and kind of thrown a little bit of small allocation of money at it. But it's like same thing to truly understand it, I think, is less than 1% of the people. The, the only thing that has resonated with me is there is a finite amount of crypto they can mine. Now, how and why, I don't know. I've heard that. And I do believe in supply, the laws of supply and demand. So when you have limited supply, um, it's good. This, you know, the pricing is determined by the, the supply and demand curves. So I can kind of get my head around that part of it. But what I don't understand is what is it and why is there only a limited supply of it? That's what I don't know. And what is it backed by? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Interesting. Do I have here for you? Do you ever do you like traveling to Europe now, or is it something that you know? Uh, it's fun. I've been you've since, been there enough that you're yeah. like, hey, I'd, I'm happy to not get on a plane because yeah, I'm but, interested uh-huh. how someone like you, who's so active and being a CEO and seeing people and stuff, like was able to like handle COVID. You know what I yeah, mean? It was hard. It, it was personally really hard. I get my energy up by being out with people, and when you're as we were talking before, when you're locked in a room at your house. 12 hours a day staring at a camera, it, it was driving me crazy. Literally, it was driving me crazy. I got a little bit of ADD. And like, if I'm at home even now for more than like three, four hours without doing something, I start to go crazy. But like, I can imagine so many CEOs and people who are probably wired how you are. It must have been really hard. Yeah, it was It was hard. I would, We were blessed that we were at a lake house in New Hampshire with my family, with our two kids and my wife. And so we it bonded us in ways that, you know, our kids are 25 and 22 now. It was looking back, it was the biggest gift because we were able to spend 24 seven with them. I moved from a, we were in like 1500 square feet in Cherry Creek, finally moved out, but like right before, but I can't imagine some of these people with kids and stuff yeah. like living in New York city and like San Francisco and like places right. like that. Like we could at least go outside and exactly. kind of play a little bit of golf now and then and stuff I, like I that. I totally agree with you. And you think about these, these people that um, both the husband and wife work both were trying to work from a small house where they had three kids who couldn't go anywhere to, either trying to teach them or school them. I, you know, well, I think we're going to feel long-term implications five, 10, 20 years from now. On. Well, you see the mental health now oh, is gosh. worse than it's ever been. And I totally mean, agree. it's tough. Like I couldn't imagine, like I said, it was lucky too, that we only had it for some of these countries now we're still dealing with, yeah. it. you know what I mean? Where <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking, you know, just this in the past few days, China has significantly relaxed their rules but imagine if you're in China, you're on total lockdown, then you're watching the World Cup where you have a million fans and not one person has a mask on. You're like, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah, I mean, I feel bad for those people because like I said, but you're gonna, I think unfortunately we're gonna see a lot of the mental health stuff I go agree. on for a long time. I'm interested, now that you're retired, are you happily, <laughs> I know you're gonna say your wife's gonna get mad at you depending on your answer on this, but are you happily retired or would you jump into something else? Or are you like, I'm officially done with everything. Like I just want to relax and enjoy myself. No, there, you know, I have a, um, I'm 57, just turned 57 years old. I've got another chapter in my life, but it doesn't nece- necessarily have to be working for a prof- for-profit enterprise. I, I've been doing a lot on the non-for-profit side. Mental health is a big, is a big passion of mine because you see firsthand, let me give a good example of where I've been spending my time. So when we're growing up, we would take CPR, eighth grade. And the whole reason you did it was you're, you're not an EMT. You're buying time. If you see someone have a heart attack, you know exactly what to do. Four pumps, blow in the mouth, four pumps, blow. you're buying time until a professional can get there. Now think about mental health. And we'll leave here today and we'll hop on I-25 and we'll get off. 
and there'll be a homeless person there asking for money, and you will look the other way. Why? We as a society are not trained, not conditioned to deal with mental health issues, and so we avoid the issues. That's a, a, a root cause of a lot of this problem going on. We don't know how to, we don't have an early detection system. So I've been spending time trying to figure out how can we f- create an early detection system that doesn't say I'm going to be the mental health professional, but if I see you're in mental stress, I know the basics of what to do. I know, hey, how are you feeling? Are you doing okay? Right now, I, I like you or like most of the people, I walk away from that stuff. I don't want to deal with it. That's not how you address an issue. If someone was having a heart attack right now, I'd jump down. Whether I was right or wrong in doing that's a whole other issue, but I know four pumps and a You try and buy some time until someone can help. Yeah, exactly. So, and there's so many great uh, resources out there, but yet no one knows about them. So I'm trying to create, how do you create awareness around that? And how do you scale things? I've learned over the last six months, the things I really get joy from. (laughs) I like playing golf. I don't get joy from playing golf. But I love mentoring people. I love scaling things. I love sustainability. And when you put all that together, mental health is the perfect thing. It's about training people, about mentoring people. It's about scaling this problem, for, so scaling the solution to the problem and doing it in a way that's enduring over time. So it ticks all those three buckets. So those are the types of things I've been looking at. And it's, it's, it's a totally different side of my brain than I've used to. Um, I've always been used to, we got an issue, let's solve it now, let's deal with it, let's move on. Well, this is something that isn't going away. And it's a little more complicated, I'm sure. And a lot more complicated. So you have another chapter, and that's probably what it's going to be in. That's that's one of the things I've been looking at, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You're going to help a lot of people. I hope. it's uh, Like I said, it's, it's we're all in it together, and it's not going away. So you know, if we want to walk away from it, and everyone else wants to walk away from it, it's only going to get worse. Makes a lot of sense. I think you're going up to the CU-CSU game tonight, so I'm going to let you go. But I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Yeah, I appreciate it. And it's been nice to get to know you, and let's play some golf sometime. Coach Prime. Prime Coach Prime, baby. Thanks. (laughs) 